So if I were to say that men and women are different, you're hardly going to be shocked, are you? And yet somehow science has done a terrible job of taking account of this fact. As a result, there are many diagnoses and treatments that are completely inappropriate for women because studies have been biased towards the male of the species. It's a good thing then that researchers like Dr. Mia Schaumburg are on the case. She talked to us about her PhD work on birth control and sports in terms of brain health. Listen in now. And everybody reels all types of things into their own circles. Welcome, dear two scientist listeners. We are coming to you from a beautiful day in Brisbane in Australia. And our guest today is Dr. Mia Schaumburg. How are you doing, Mia? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming out to meet us. This is not a part of the world we're particularly familiar with. So it's cool to be able to get to explore a little bit and hear from researchers from a completely different part of the world. Yeah, definitely. And you've chosen the perfect day, I think, or perfect weekend to come to Brisbane. It's, it's stunning and there'll be lots of nice places to go and see afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt that we've got like a beer and a wine. Oh, and Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> oh, come on, David. There we go. <laughs> cheers. <laughs> oh, that is perfect. So... We usually begin by asking our speaker to give us a bit of background on who they are, why they got into science, and how they ended up in the, their field of interest. Okay. Um, well, I guess for me, I was always I was always really interested in science, and I always knew I really wanted to do something with science from, from fairly young. Um, I did a lot of experiments at home. And, um, what kind of know, experiments? Oh, like growing butterflies from chrysalises or, um, you know, trying out different things with food or okay. <laughs> lots of different, lots of different um, experiments. And um, I was also homeschooled, which, um, which sort of gave me, I guess, the drive to learn independently really quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, as well, I guess my family's really sporty. And I had a, a very strong, I guess, sporting influence throughout my, throughout my childhood. And when I got to the end of my schooling, I was like, well, I really love science, but I also really love sport. So people tell you to do what you love. So can I combine science and sport? Um, yeah. And as a result, I went and studied exercise and sports science as my undergraduate at, at the University of Queensland and um, haven't, really, haven't really looked back. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's um, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, really, it's really amazing to be able to, to work in a field that you really, you know, you really love. And it's yeah. always been something you've been interested in. Um, yeah. And I, I guess from there, I actually had really, some really great lecturers and mentors throughout my, throughout my undergrad. And um, I did honours with a PhD student who eventually became faculty at at UQ and she supervised my my PhD so I've had great mentors throughout and um, yeah being able to be able to work in a field that I, I really enjoy. Yeah. Very cool um, yeah. so exercise always strikes me as being one of those two things like nutrition which really gets hyped up in the news and yeah. um, so how do you deal with what people probably have as some perception like oh you know you have to do this thing and all of a sudden it will cure this disease or you know you will never develop such and such a thing yeah no it's very true I think there is a lot of hype and a lot of um 
false information or pseudoscience, I guess, around mm-hmm. exercise and nutrition, anything to do with the body. And there's a lot of a lot of people that claim that they're experts in those areas, and I think that is definitely part of the problem. And it's one of the reasons as well. I'm really passionate about exercise physiology as a science um, and as a as a clinical field Mm -hmm. so we have clinical exercise physiologists that are specialists in in exercise prescription and understanding how exercise influences chronic disease um, lifestyle related diseases um, and also how you know how exercise can be used to improve health and well-being uh, generally Mm -hmm. Um, so I think really for me it's always coming back to back to the evidence so you know what do what does our research within our area of of exercise physiology show Mm -hmm. um and can we then you know can we get that message out to the public so there's no point being um you know being a scientist and and not speaking out about you know within your field when there are you know there are hundreds of people with much greater social media followings or you know so much more influence in this field but yep. they actually don't have I guess the qualifications to back them up yep. so it's very much about about speaking out and and communicating what you do and yeah and yeah so is this where you contribute to the conversation yeah no definitely I am um, <laughs> that was a fun article to write um uh, the conversation is I mean, it's got a great reputation around the world and, and in Australia, and um, it's a way to get your research to the general public in a in a, a, a bit more of a relaxed, written manner, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess we yeah. should explain that the conversation is really written by academics who are experts in the fields that they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I worked with an editor who mm-hmm. was a science writer, and she you know, gave me good feedback about how I could improve or make my writing I guess more accessible and yeah. you know, more understandable for for a wide audience and people that may not know too much about the mm-hmm. field yeah. yeah so um going back specifically to your research like you started off working on um oral contraceptives in physically active mm-hmm. women now how did that come about yeah uh, <laughs> great question uh so for me um you know, I knew I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do a PhD. I knew I wanted mm-hmm. to do research, but I really wanted to do research in uh, a question that that I was really interested in. I suppose a question that I'd come up with. And at that time, throughout my undergrad, I coached a lot of sport mm-hmm. um, and worked with a lot of uh, a lot of women, a lot of younger women, um, and a lot of women that actually had that they had questions about you know. Um, menstruation about uh, fertility about oral contraceptive use and there is that's another area that has a lot of um, anecdotal evidence oh, yes. or pseudoscience about oh gosh the pill like as we know it colloquially here mm-hmm. probably around the world you know the pill it makes you fat or it's gonna you know it's gonna um, you know, you're never going to be able to have kids if you take it for too long or there's all these um, you know, there's all these claims about what that medication does to the body. And I found that talking to a lot of young girls, they're like, well, I can't do that because, you know, I'm going to get fat and then my performance will be affected. Yeah. You know, what does the pill do to my, my performance? Am I, you know? And so I was like, well, well, I don't actually know. I can't find good research that tells me what the pill will do to your exercise performance mm-hmm. or how it will influence how you train yeah. or adapt to, to training. So that's why I, 
I decided to to investigate that. Yeah. That's brilliant. So you came up with a question yourself? Yeah, yeah. I came up with a question myself. I um I found um my advisors who mm-hmm. I'd worked with before and they were, I think, very trusting in me that I had <laughs> come up with a question. I was like, look, I would like to investigate this. The problem with kind of specifically mm. female reproduction and understanding how it works just seems to be, first of all, poorly understood by people who have those parts. <laughs> and there's, there's still so much stigma attached to understanding um, the women's health better. Yeah, it's it's. That's very true and I think that that stigma really does influence how research is done in that area and the fact that people don't understand it. Um, And I think a little anecdote about that. So when I was designing my studies around this area, of course you get a lot of feedback and you go to conferences and present um, or talk about your ideas and the number one thing that, you know, uh, professors or, you know, high... You know, very well-renowned researchers in exercise physiology said to me, "I was like, well, you know, this is going to have to be a placebo, blo- placebo-controlled, double-blinded, you know, exercise trial. That's mm. all the range in exercise." I was like, "Well, no, you can't have a placebo-controlled because you'll know that yeah. the participants will know whether it's a placebo or not, and in the rare case they do not know. There are so many ethical, terrible considerations yes. with with that." study design and um, people really they just could not get their head around why that might be a problem because there is such a lack of understanding around women's health around oral contraception um, mm-hmm. and and how to actually investigate that scientifically yeah. so that's really what I what I wanted to set about doing in my PhD was figure out how to investigate that in a in a scientific rigorous manner yeah mm-hmm. so we should probably hop back to basics and can you explain how oral contraceptives actually work? <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. <laughs> I'm not a, not a medical doctor or an endocrinologist, yeah. but um, so the contraceptive pill essentially provides a daily dose. When you take the pill, it provides a daily dose of an, a synthetic estrogen mm-hmm. um, and a progesterone um, in the pill. As some pills also provide only a synthetic progesterone. And um, that dose of estrogen and progesterone essentially tells the body that you already have enough of that hormone in your system and it stops your body from producing the natural hormones, the natural estrogen and, and progesterone. And when you have that synthetic, you know, synthetic hormone at a constant level throughout the whole month, it stops the fluctuations which cause ovulation. So it eventually will, um, well, it will stop um, stop ovulation, and mm-hmm. that's the contraceptive side. There are other benefits to the oral contraceptive as well, um, but the main point is that it will uh, it will stop ovulation. Yeah. yeah, but I think so. One of the reasons why this is a big issue in the U.S. right now is that obviously people attach it directly to sex like the only reason Mm. you could be taking the pill is because you want to go out and have lots of sex but I think people misunderstand that it also has therapeutic benefits outside of that right absolutely so there are multiple reasons why women might take 
and oral contraceptive. And one of the common reasons for younger women is acne control. Mm-hmm. So by, um, you know, by minimizing those hormonal fluctuations, you're able to control acne. And there are some estrogens, synthetic estrogens, that have been designed specifically um, to, to target that. Um, you know, that's other factors as well, like, for example, controlling endometriosis, um, polycystic ovaries, yeah. PCOS, is um, another reason why, why a lot of women might take, take the, contraception, the contraceptive pill to, um, to control, control their symptoms. Yeah, because um, those are horrible, painful conditions. Absolutely, absolutely. And there is a lot of evidence to suggest that that, that medication can really help those women to you know to manage you know, manage those symptoms those painful symptoms and also um, I guess as a result improve their quality of life and mm-hmm. improve their ability to you know to do a lot of normal things that that women without those conditions wouldn't even you know wouldn't even consider yeah you know, like exercising yes um, for example absolutely um, yeah so what were the outcomes of your your PhD studies what were the implications of taking oral contraceptives on how women exercise yeah um so i guess the main the main outcome was firstly uh in australia and i i looked at australian women um, here in australia oral contraception is is highly prevalent um mm-hmm. you know about 60 percent of young young women um will take the medication and up to 90 percent of, of women of reproductive age have taken that medication at some point so mm-hmm. it affects a lot of people yeah um and in terms of exercise people uh, don't really know how it affects their exercise but they do believe that it has an effect and so in my um in my main study within my phd i actually uh, ran a training study and we looked at whether um, taking an oral contraceptive actually influenced adaptation to training and uh, we demonstrated that taking a contraceptive pill actually dampened adaptation mm-hmm. or physiological adaptation to exercise training. Um, what's important, I guess, though, with those findings is that uh, performance changes were not impeded. So right. women could still perform and improve their exercise performance. But, for example, a measure that we use a lot in exercises VO2 max or the mm-hmm. maximal aerobic capacity and that was significantly rescinded in women taking oh. a contraceptive pill. Um, in the in the tune of about, I saw about a 15% improvement in women that were naturally menstruating mm-hmm. versus um, about a 7% improvement in women that were taking the contraceptive um, pill. Um, so it has a couple of implications. So firstly, you know, we think that well if you exercise and if you train you're going to get better Mm -hmm. right but there are lots of factors that are going to influence how well you can adapt to training and oral contraceptive use is so common in physically active women it's very common in elite athletes Mm -hmm. and if you think about as well even to get into a team for example um in an aerobic aerobically based sport um your VO2 max is taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. So if you take the pill and the lady next to you does not, you may have this disadvantage straight away. And it was really about trying to demonstrate that oral contraception does need to be considered when we talk about training adaptation. Mm. Mm. Um, 
there was one other interesting point around that, which was that, um, you know, you'd think that taking the contraceptive pill and having those synthetic hormones in your body was would be mm-hmm. what's causing that problem yeah. or what's causing that reduction in training. But yep. um, when I actually split the naturally menstruating women into two groups, women that had high hormone levels, mm-hmm. normal hormone yeah. levels, and women that have very low hormone levels, um, the women with very low normal hormone levels actually adapted in a very similar way to the oral contraceptive users. So it leads us to think that it's not the presence of the synthetic hormone, but it's actually the lack of natural hormone that leads to that reduction. So as per usual, it's complicated. As per usual, (laughs) it's complicated. (laughs) It's slightly more complicated because you're talking about menstrual cycles and fluctuations and, you know, (laughs) lots of touchy subjects. Yeah, because presumably just having a cycle itself is enough to alter performance. Absolutely. The the natural fluctuations in estrogen and also progesterone alter um, you know, also muscle contractility, they alter strength. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have um, some colleagues that have done great research in that area um, and you know, even to the point of, of altering cardiovascular you know, ad- oh, um, wow. responses, so yeah. how the heart and the, the lungs, I suppose, operate. Oh, mm. But you've now moved on to a field of research that's a little bit different. So you're now looking at the effects in um, people who might have cognitive impairments in the future. So first of all, I think we should define the word cognition. It's one of those words that's associated with the brain that gets thrown around. Yes. But people don't necessarily understand what it means. Yes, um, I get pulled up a lot for using cognition (laughs) in in normal conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But... I guess cognition essentially means like your brain function, you know, how you can um, process information, how you can make decisions, um, how you can remember or learn. So cognition involves a lot of different types of, of how your your brain, I suppose, works and what it contributes to yep. our, our um, normal function. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so your research now is looking at... Um, people who would have impairments so potentially um, they might be developing some form of Alzheimer's or uh, other kind of cognitive decline as we call it. Yeah exactly so um, the projects that I'm working on at the moment do they look at um, how exercise can potentially prevent or even reverse age-related decline in brain Mm -hmm. function so cognitive decline. Yeah. Um, and that change, I guess, came about as I was finishing up my, my PhD. I really did want to do um, a postdoc, a research-related um, position. And um, this project was um, it was being proposed um, within our university and they mm-hmm. were looking for collaborators, collaborators from our school. Um, and I thought that, you know, firstly, it seemed like a really interesting um interesting way to apply a lot of the skills that I'd learned in my PhD Mm -hmm. around designing exercise interventions, um, controlling for lots of different factors and parameters that we need to control for in in exercise studies because people people don't do just what you want them to do in any Uh sort of exercise study. (laughs) Um, They do lots of other things and they don't tell you about it. Um, So there are lots of things you need to control for and, and I felt like it was a really... Um, really interesting area and mm-hmm. a really good way to um, to be able to 
develop those scientific skills further. So for me, it wasn't so much about the research area, but it was about the question that we wanted to we wanted to answer and and how we could best answer that question. Mm-hmm. So, so you've mentioned a couple of times uh, the kind of studies that you do. Can you describe how you set them up, the people who get selected, and then the kind yeah. of outcomes that you look at? Yeah, okay. So I'll, um, I'll talk a little bit about the Healthy Brain study mm-hmm. um, that we're running at the moment. Um, so we advertise, firstly, after we get ethical clearance and have our projects approved, we advertise for interested participants. So does definitely uh, introduce a bit of a selection bias um, with interventions. So we get people that that want to do it. They mm-hmm. want to improve. Um, and uh, so we, we screen these participants. Um, we have a set of inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, and then once they've met those criteria, they uh, come into our laboratory, our exercise laboratory. We call it a clinic because it's a little bit less scary um, <laughs> and um, and we do baseline assessment of whatever variables we're interested in um, so for example um, we might assess variables related to fitness and perform a fitness test mm-hmm. so exercising on a treadmill and um, utilizing or, or collecting expired air so with a mask over the face um, you know uh, we might measure muscle strength mm-hmm. um, you know, there's lots of, I suppose, we use, we try and use measures, I guess, that have been used in the literature and that they're yeah. evidence-based and we know they actually measure what we're, what we're looking for mm-hmm. because you can't directly uh, measure a lot of things in, in physiology, yeah. exercise physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, within uh, the Healthy Brain Study as well, we, we assess um, brain function, cognition, um, and we do that with a lot of uh, touch screen based um, okay. uh, memory tests, sort of learning and memory tests. So, have lots of um, uh, iPads where participants are looking to match shapes or colors or words. Um, and uh, a lot of our data collection is actually quite electronic in that mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, so, after, uh, after the baseline assessment of all of the variables that we're interested in, um, participants begin a, an intervention and exercise program essentially it's an exercise regime um, and every study is different but uh, our participants come in three times a week yep. uh, they work with an exercise physiologist or exercise scientist and um, they have a an individualized exercise um, programs so they have to work at a set heart rate or a set intensity um, and we we record their heart rate, their blood pressure, mm-hmm. how they're feeling, have a bit of a chat, make a few friends, um, <laughs> and try and make sure they, they really want to come back and keep coming yeah, every yeah, yeah. week for six months. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's actually one of the biggest challenges, and that's something I really look for within my team if I'm looking for PhD students or research assistants is that yep. they can develop rapport with, with people and really um, make them feel special, make them feel like they're contributing and mm-hmm. getting to come back and then after six months of exercise um we do assess things throughout the six months as well but after the intervention people come back in and they redo all of those parameters that we we did at the start yep um 
and that's that's uh, that's it in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> uh, very quick nutshell. <laughs> yes. Yes. So the um, what kind of dropout rates do you have, and what how many people do you need for it to be a meaningful study? Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great question. So when we design a study like this, we always initially look at our primary outcome and we determine what would be considered a meaningful difference uh, or meaningful change. Mm -hmm. Um, We do a power calculation or a sample size calculation to determine how many people we would need in every group. Mm -hmm. Um, So for this this particular study, we took took one of the measures, we figured out that difference, and we, we required about 60 people per group Right. Um, to to uh, reach that, um, reach a significant um, sort of level. Mm-hmm. Um, we generally see in exercise studies around about a 30% dropout rate. Okay. Um, and we did allow for that within our recruitment, but we've actually had a really low dropout rate. And I very much you know, attribute that to the team that work with people every day. We've had about 12% uh-huh. um, dropout of a six-month intervention. So... Pretty, um, it's pretty good. We also have very dedicated volunteers. So. Sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, so I've, are there people who come along and kind of use this as an excuse to develop a kind of training routine? Absolutely. And I think that's sometimes how we, we sell it as well. So it's a great way to kickstart um, kick your exercise. It's a great way to learn a little bit more about your body. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have the chance to be involved in an exercise study, um, I mean, there's lots of things that you measure that you wouldn't even think that you could, you know, you yeah. could measure. Um, and a lot of things about your health that you probably you know, think you're doing okay and then you, you uh, try this particular test and you go, oh gosh, actually, not so good at that. <laughs> or, oh gosh, I really need to do more of this. Um, so that's, that's uh, definitely one way that we, we attract people into exercise studies. My PhD study, I started straight after, um, straight after New Year mm-hmm. and it was a New Year get fit <laughs> um, type of, <laughs> type of um, ad- advertising. Yeah. Very good. Um, so in terms of cognitive benefit, what do we know that's confirmed within the literature regarding cognitive improvement or benefits from exercise because it seems like one of these things that could be very wishy-washy and yeah um so we we know we know that exercise is good um and that i mean exercise is good for a lot of things Mm -hmm. right um what we don't really know is that is first like why exercise is good so what the mechanism behind um behind exercise exercising your whole body influencing just your brain and um, actually is and i guess that's one thing that we're really trying to we're really trying to find out um um but yeah we do know that exercise is good um more exercise <laughs> Goodness! Oh goodness! <laughs> Sorry. Um, more exercise seems to be seems to be better, um, and if you have a lower baseline, you're going to see you know, more improvement. Mm-hmm. So people, um, and and even in people that have dementia, so um, 
that do have have that disease there um, they can also get great benefit from exercise it won't be able to completely reverse the disease but it can help with a lot of symptoms so behavioral symptoms and um, you know sleep for example mm-hmm. there's a lot of benefits around that area too yeah um, but yeah it seems to be um, it's definitely a growing area so looking at exercise and and brain health um, so David's asking, um, is it possible to do too much exercise with regards to the, the physical, the body? We can probably understand that you can strain certain things and damage certain things. But how about um, from the cognitive point of view? Yeah. Uh, so uh, what my, um, what my uh, supervisor, Perry Bartlett, actually calls this, he calls this a sweet spot. So, um, you know, you, want, you don't want to be doing too little because you're not going to be getting the benefit. But at the same time, doing too much is probably not going to be um, not going to be beneficial either. There is there does seem to be a window or a spot in in the middle. Um, the I guess there's also a lot of anecdotal evidence around that, but with extreme levels of exercise, we get a lot of oxidative stress within our body, and that oxidative stress um, can lead to um, more health problems mm-hmm. earlier, including uh, including cognitive decline and, and dementia. So, um, yeah, there you can definitely do too much. It's everything in moderation really um and that is something that we're really trying to work on within our within our research is what is the optimal amount of exercise um you know what is the optimal prescription in terms of intensity in terms of time um, Mm -hmm. even in terms of the type of exercise should we just be walking or running should we be lifting weights or doing yoga um, <laughs> there's lots of different there's lots of different types of exercise that we could be doing, and finding that optimal level is is something I think that's important. But on that end as well, we know uh, we know exercise is good, you know, but if all that we needed was for people to know that exercise is good to do it, we wouldn't have any of the you know, any of the health problems related to. Yeah, related to an activity that we do. So it's also about figuring out what's best, but then how do we get people to actually do it? And I think that's where the the research is going to have to go Mm -hmm. in the future. (laughs) So we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, and you were saying how actually the irony is that you are quite sedentary during your work day. So what's a typical yes. day for you? <laughs> um, well, uh, at the moment, I do do quite a bit of quite a bit of uh, sitting during the day. Um, so a lot of uh, reading, a lot of writing, um, and uh, there's a bit, I guess, where I get up and, and walk to meetings or walk to lectures. Um, but yeah, a lot of the work that I do at the moment is is fairly. <laughs> fairly sedentary so I definitely do try and get out of the office to go for a run um, or go to the gym and, and stay stay active mm-hmm. um, when I was working uh, within my postdoc in in our in our healthy brains clinic um, our team is on their feet all day you know you have people coming in coming out you'd be taking blood samples you'd be running exercise classes answering the phone lots of different things going on when you've got 100 160 180 uh, 65 to 85 year olds wanting your time oh well um it it does get very very busy so i'm definitely feeling the effects now of um of moving and um and not not exercising as much (laughs) yes so what's your favorite kind of exercise 
Uh, I love to run. Mm-hmm. That's that's my favorite. I've always always been a runner. I used to run a lot with my dad when I was younger and um, have, yeah, I've always run. I find it gives you a bit of mental space mm-hmm. and, um, and I also find it a bit of a challenge. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And has your research influenced the way you do exercise in any way? Uh, yes. So I'm a very big believer in uh, interval training. Mm-hmm. So um, high-intensity interval training. So doing yeah. a short period of exercise followed by a period of rest followed by another period of exercise. And I love to play around with intervals. So mm-hmm. um, you probably see me along the Brisbane River doing four minutes on, three minutes off, four minutes on, three minutes off. And if I have any participants listening, they will be very familiar with that protocol. Um, but yeah, no, it definitely does influence how I how I exercise. Well, that's, that's great because you're actually putting your work to work. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I uh, tell everyone um, that, they, <laughs> that intervals are great and high intensity exercise is where it's at. So hopefully um, a few more people are putting it to work as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I think I'm too lazy for that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, I think that's a great note to end on and say thank okay. you very much for your time. Like This has been really interesting and... Um, yeah, good luck with your, I think, your relatively new position, right? Yeah, thank you. Yes, uh, we are. We have O-Week, Orientation Week next week, and then the week after we start uh, Semester 2, and so it's my first semester coordinating um, a course at University of the Sunshine Coast. So I have 800 first-year human physiology students to... Um, to keep occupied for 13 (laughs) weeks (laughs) wish me luck (laughs) we will do wonderful all right thank you again thank you physiology um, it's pretty commonplace we do a lot of experimentation on ourselves and I've already alluded to the fact that I I quite like interval training and I do try lots of intervals in my own exercise Um, but throughout my PhD I I needed to figure out the best type of protocol to use with my uh, within my training studies so I did a lot of experimentation and I figured out the right you know, the right protocol. I thought it was the right protocol and I decided it was time to do a bit of pilot testing. So I got my um, got my honours students. Um, I had about, I had five lovely girls working for me um, doing their honours research with my PhD project. And um, so I got them all uh, together. I was like, look, this will be a great test. Um, see how your skills are and um, we'll be able to go through the protocol and this and that. I probably shouldn't have volunteered myself to be the the test subject because those five lovely girls um, turned into absolute demons with a bit of power (laughs) and they uh, had a a very uh, way too much pleasure, I guess, from yelling at me and pushing me and prodding me and poking me and getting me to work harder. Uh, By the end of this, this pilot session I honestly I could not feel my legs and they had had the best time <laughs> and I literally stumbled off this bike we're doing this bike training stumbled off this bike on my very jelly legs and wandered out I was like I think I need to go to the bathroom <laughs> I need to get rid of some of this lactic acid in my stomach I, um, 
didn't ever really make it to the bathroom and I, the OHS guy, he found me uh, just just slumped against the wall outside the bathroom. So I was like, I can't move my legs, Gary. He's like, what's been happening, Mia? Those girls giving you a taste of your own medicine? It's um, like, yes, yes, I think that might be the case. <laughs> so... That's my uh, that's my dirt. <laughs> Don't trust your students. Do you feel alive now? Same old pattern, same old stand, it's different chapters. Do you feel alive now? You feel This episode was recorded at Popolo in the South Bank in Brisbane. Thank you so much to the charming lady who looked after us that day. We wish we could remember her name. The music you're listening to right now is a song called Same Old. Thanks to the Brisbane-based artist Felivand for letting us use it. We alluded to a few themes around women's health in this podcast that you might want to read more about. Head to scientists.org to get the links to some relevant articles. That should keep you busy before our release next week. Until then, have a great one. But the rising sun don't let the night decide the time she's gonna go up today. So come back to your home. You got nothing on your throne. No more. Just remnants and from that sorry <laughs> um, 